Welcome to AI, Government and the Future, a podcast by Corner Alliance. We explore the intersection of artificial intelligence, government and the future with your host, Alan Pence. We work with government to create results. We ignite your agency's mission by helping you to design and implement high impact and innovative federal programs in AI, broadband, cybersecurity, public safety, and more. Being a government ally is at the core of all we do. Introducing your host, Alan Pence. Welcome to the podcast today. We've got a really special treat. We have two guests. This is the first time we've ever had the double shot ever. So I'm very excited. Both of our guests today work with the Chief Digital and Artificial Intelligence Office, and it's DOD, Department of Defense, so it has to be an acronym. So it's CDAO, and we're going to have them describe their roles. From that office, we have Glenn Parham and Drew Brooks with us today. So guys, welcome to the podcast and appreciate you being on. Yeah, thanks for being here. So Drew, let's start with you. Just tell us a little bit about your role at CDO. Yeah, absolutely. So CDAO is a relatively new office within the Office of Secretary of Defense. We were formed um, a little over a year ago through the combination of a couple different efforts that were around DOD focused on data and AI. So you might have heard of the Joint AI Center. That was part of it. Also, they took the, uh, the Chief Data Office, the Defense Digital Service, uh, which is where Glenn was working, or we became CDAO. And then Advano, which is a data analytics and or big data platform, an AI platform uh, that used to be within the office of the comptroller and put us all together and made, well, they named Dr. Craig Martell as the first chief digital and AI officer for the department uh, with the mission of accelerating the adoption of both data analytics and AI throughout all of the military services and defense agencies and field activities. And so we coordinate that at the Pentagon level, try to make sure that budgets are aligned, strategies are aligned, create kind of enabling infrastructure, things that people can use commonly uh, across the different services. And then to the extent that it makes sense, if we see a a really excellent solution out there, we kind of have the ability to scale it, to make it department-wide so that everybody kind of increase the pace of that, that adoption. Andrew, your specific role in that? So I work in the policy directorate and I'm on the responsible AI team. What we're doing is creating policies and guidelines, but also actual tools to help people in the department, make sure that we can do uh, AI things in a way that uh, embodies the principles in the EOD AI ethical principle. So that was something that the department adopted in 2020. We we're the first military in the world to officially announce and adopt a series of ethical principles uh, that are going to guide our work. In AI, those principles are responsible, equitable, traceable, reliable, and governable. All of the AI that we do will meet those principles. And the mission of my office in particular is to kind of operationalize that and make them more tangible and more easy to demonstrate the, how you're fulfilling those ideals. That's great. Glenn, you came from DDS, right? As, as Drew mentioned. So talk about your role there. Yeah, that's right. So I was initially brought on to the Defense Digital Service, which people refer to as like the, the SWAT team of nerds of the Pentagon. So we stayed on, we've been subsumed into CDAO, where I still serve within DDS, but I also serve as part of Task Force Lima, the Generative AI Task Force, which I can also get into a little bit 
but I'm a software engineer and data scientist. And our job is to really kind of go into rapidly evolving and emerging technical complications and situations throughout the DoD and, and kind of problem solve. So it's been kind of interesting to have that culture meet the rest of CDAO. We started to work really well. Our partners and responsible AI, algorithmic warfare, especially along the efforts of task force, just the generative AI task force. Yeah. So let's, uh, let's go right into that. So let's talk about Lima and how you're looking at it and maybe kind of give us a context. You know, most people are coming into this from a chat GPT as their main experience with an LLM. So talk about what you're doing fits in with that and how it's different. So chat GPT, we, we can't discount the, the role it's played in kind of catalyzing a lot of interests across society, but especially in the government uh, with respect to generative AI. Last summer, around that time frame, 2023, is when the Deputy Secretary of Defense, as well as our boss, um, Dr. Martel, started talking about generative AI and the, the prospect of there being some kind of dedicated effort to look at the use of generative AI in the context of the DoD. And so they, uh, Deputy Secretary of Defense, Dr. Kathleen Hicks, uh, last August, I believe, signed into effect task force, which the mandate is essentially to index what the current state of generative AI DoD, what are people working on? It's a it's the largest organization in the world. So there's going to be all sorts of efforts that are already kind of pre-existing. But also more importantly, like where should we be going from a responsible AI perspective? What should we be working on to ensure that this AI is ethical? And the technical side, which is more my domain, is like what are the technical components that we need to work on to ensure that this artificial intelligence is scalable, that we're able to do it or, you know, without it costing our leg. Um, and so that's what we've been really focused on for the past few months. It's, it's a really like diverse consortium, policy folks, technical folks like myself, people from all over the services kind of voicing their opinions. So at a high level, that's what we're working on. And so from an LLM perspective, you guys would be working with in-house develop models, maybe open source models, ones from different vendors, and everybody's probably got a different flavor that they're working with. And you guys are trying to coordinate across to see what makes sense to work together on. That's right. I think across the DoD, everyone has their own requirements and own kind of constraints. So some people can rely on proprietary or closed source models like provided by the main tech companies and so on. But some various DoD organizations have to do everything in a box. It has to all be air-gapped. Right. And so in those cases, we have to rely on pulling things from the open source and deploying it locally. Like creating a decision tree that people can go to to figure out like, hey, given I have these either cybersecurity or funding constraints, how can I best you know implement large language models? So just from perspective of where, so you guys are kind of, you know, we had Gaston recently who's, running the center of excellence for GSA AI. So they're kind of a shared service provider. They go into different agencies on the civilian side and kick off pilots, do assessments, that kind of stuff. So it sounds you guys have kind of a similar role. Your constituents might have a little bit more experience and more money or something, but kind of similar. So give us a kind of a couple ideas or a couple of case studies on things you've seen. DOD is working on and might be interesting. Yeah, I'm happy to, to share some of the, the work. I mean, Andrew, feel free to chime in, but I'm happy to share some of the work that we've kind of been piloting and experimenting with, with a couple of our different customers. 
to kind of start off, we worked and we're in the process of experimenting with using large language models in the context of actual cyber defense operations. Mm -hmm. So we partnered with IWTSD, that's the Irregular Warfare Technical Support Directorate. Very long acronym. Yeah, good for you. I was out of plan. Yeah, it was long names. But the head of their security operations center came to me um, actually while I was at a conference last year and was like, hey, like I have this idea. Is would large language models be appropriate and actually enhance how we monitor our networks from a cybersecurity perspective? And I was like, hmm, I actually don't know because I'm not a cybersecurity person, but I'm an AI person and vice versa. And so over the course of several months, we kind of understood and analyzed how the cybersecurity analysts for this network do their job, how they look for cybersecurity vulnerabilities on the network, how they address them and, and kind of mediate them. And as we've come to find out, large language models can be incredibly effective in this context at one, identifying some potentially nefarious and anomalous behaviors, and then at a pretty large scale. But then secondly, what's really interesting is these LLMs are able to generate incident response plans mm. automatically. So not only is it telling you that your network's on fire, so to speak, but also like how to put the fire out. So things like, let's say somebody logs into a network from New York, and then five seconds later logs in from Istanbul, Turkey or something. It not only flags that, obviously, which is what you'd expect, but also says, you know, we recommend, our project recommends resetting this user's password or deactivating their account or whatever. But the fact that it's automatically recommending this kind of alleviates a lot of the bandwidth and brain cognition of these analysts who are just swamped with yeah, of course. all sorts of different. So how is it getting that input on the on the anomaly, right? Is it some is someone entering that in or is it or is it getting some kind of feed in? It's connected. We just run experiments, so we've connected it to actual like cybersecurity logs and data. Mm. Um, so it's it's all being done programmatically at a decently large scale. And then basically we're instructing the LLM to flag anomalous behaviors and those get kind of bubbled up and filtered to the top. And then do you think like, is it possible like it's, it it's, could start learning even more as you feed it the data, right? And be like, oh, we see. And then you could start saying like, what kind of patterns do you see? That's correct. And we kind of built this whole thing to be a human process. So, cause there's all the times false flags and false noise where analysts are able to say, hey, false alert, this was actually a perfectly normal incident, and we're able to kind of do a feedback loop to our large language model. That's really cool. That's cool. Drew, tell us a little bit about on your side. Our big initiative uh, right now is a capability that we call the uh, RAI Toolkit or Responsible AI Toolkit. So it's a um, thing we launched in November of this year. It's actually available to the public. So you can link to it from AI.mil, which is the CDAO website. And it's a series of questions uh, that walk through an AI like development and, and use life cycle. So from ideation, like the initially coming up with your, what do you think you want to do with AI through monitoring and deployment uh, and even, you know, taking the capability back offline or updating it if you need to. And it helps the developers and the project team kind of walk through with each of those steps. What are the questions that you need to be asking? to ensure you're, you know, meeting your ethical obligations and then helps direct them to tools that are either 
open source, government off the shelf, some commercial off the shelf. We try to keep them as many as uh, possible that are, that are open source or already kind of owned by the government uh, to help you answer the question. So if you're, you're asking a question like, here's my data, what kind of biases does it have in it? We don't just ask you that question and, and let you figure it out on your own. We say, okay, and here's some tools you can use to actually examine it and try to figure out what the biases are. Do model monitoring, for instance, just to, to help make, like I said, those AI ethical principles a little more operationally relevant and give them, give teams something kind of tangible to grab onto. One of the things we had also talked about, Drew, in our prep for this was um, like a lot of people love the cool application and I'm sure like algorithmic warfare sounds like really cool and I'm sure, but rea the reality is like most of the stuff that you're going to be doing, even in a place as cool as DOD is going to be kind of typical back office automation-y kind of stuff. So is that kind of say like, that's really the backbone of how AI is getting hits, right? Yeah. I mean, DOD is a, it's a huge organization. And so, you know, for all of the, uh, really cool high-end warfighting capabilities that we have for a massive personnel organization, you know, three with something million people who work for us. So we have a huge HR operation, hiring infrastructure that the DOD runs, you know, facilities, schools, logistics, supply chain. And so, yeah, almost anything that's like a business operation that any normal corporation would have, there's some equivalent. And that is where a lot of the data that we own is. So there's a lot of, I think, efficiencies to be gained there, a lot of, you know, goodness to be had just by kind of marshalling that data in a way that makes it accessible to people, makes it uh, able to be used to make decisions, even with simple statistics and analytics. And so, yeah, there's a lot of a lot of stuff like that. I think I mentioned Game Changer during our prep. That was a, an Advana, that is an Advana capability that's it for searching DoD policies and regulation, which you know alone are just huge volumes of things and finding exactly what you need. That big pile, you know, is something that takes uh, a lot of specialized knowledge. But you know, we think with the right analytic capabilities, we can make that a lot more accessible and really make let people make better decisions faster. Yeah, and. You guys had a phrase for that, right? Like a catchphrase for CDAO. On yeah. Accelerating. Decision, yeah. Yeah. Accelerating decision advantage. Accelerating decision advantage. I like that. Yeah. And it's a part of it too. It's just like, as you say about the regs, but even beyond that, there's just pile, well, not piles, I guess they're electronic, but there are just terabytes of PDFs and other things that have been around for years that are basically like sort of dark, right? You don't really know what's in them. And you now have the opportunity to kind of, you know, that you can bring that to the fore and see what's there and use it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's, you know, stuff that takes, frankly, just a lot of specialized knowledge uh, within the department just exists from people who've been around long enough, who have read the document, seen them implemented, know what reference to go find or who to go talk to. And we think a lot of these analytic technologies can help make those connections faster. And for us on the RAI team, the point is to then make sure that people have the right amount of confidence in those answers when they come back. Yeah. You know? So right now, in a lot of cases, you're trusting a person because you know that person's been around the department for 30 years. And so they know how this regulation works and how to maybe build your program, do it correctly, or how to create a capability that works well within that. And we want to make sure that people have that same amount of call it, calibrated trust. Yeah. in the electronic systems and the, the data analytic or AI solutions that they're using. 
Yeah, and I thought this is a really good point, particularly for DoD. Like you're feeding data or tell you know whatever the results of some generative AI to a battlefield commander. You know you got to have a level of trust the way that hey I'm giving you a correlated insight on how to price your product. You can try it. You can passed out and see you don't need the level of confidence but like you're in a life and death situation it's not just responsible in the sense of like protecting people's privacy and things like that but it's responsible in like how much trust do i have in the information what kind of decision i can make with it right yeah absolutely yeah you know we as much as we look to industry for for inspiration and for, for partnerships and the things we do yeah it's it's a lot different when it's about changing a website or changing, you know, the, the email push and you can do kind of A-B testing to see, okay, which of these options gets, gets the click through to buy and which tends to have people, you know, leave their item in the cart more often. Yeah. It's a lot different in this sort of some of the, especially some of the, uh, you know, really high speed situations where we are, but we want to make sure that we do as much possible on the kind of assurance and trust building work ahead of time and also education. So yeah. that when that commander, when that decision maker gets the output uh, from one of these systems, they know what it means, what the biases are behind it, what assumptions might have been made in the creation of it. And so they can then take that and, and use it to make the best possible. That's correct. So Glenn, we were sort of talking about, you know, all this data that's littered around everywhere and kind of making it useful. So talk to us a little bit about Technically, I guess this is the ability of AI now to work with unstructured data in a different way. Just talk to us a little bit about the technical side of that, like how that developed and what you think the impact that's having. Yeah, that's been really incredible. So, you know, the DoD, as we discussed, has massive amount, like an unfathomable amount of data littered over the course of years, but it is largely unstructured. It's structured in all sorts of different ways and mechanisms, text, PowerPoints and charts, and like it's uh, chaos. And so what's really powerful about large language models is their ability to take all the above and be able to do reasoning against that or answer questions. We find that really powerful. One of the, uh, I guess, pilot programs I've also been working um, in coordination with the headquarters of the Air Force is basically they have bunch of these documents, PDFs, that over the course of these various summits and conferences with like high-level Air Force leadership, they want to be able to ask questions. So an example of a question, hypothetically, would be, you know, how many this particular jet exists? Like that's something mm. they would just want to know over the course of like a week-long conference. And so typically what happens is they have that question, and then they know that the question exists in the document, these thousands of documents, but they have to go out and find the answer. They have to go do searches, and they have all of these analysts conducting these searches. And so what we did, and we demonstrated actually at the last summit last month in December, was an AI approach to this, where instead we have access to all the documents first, and we use a large language model essentially to traverse those documents and find the answer almost instantly and produce that answer. And so it was pretty magical experience I'm having, you know, a lot of senior Air Force officials come to us with questions and, you know, they're expecting the usual months it takes to get a response. 
and there we're generating it in minutes. And they were like, are you kidding me? This is insane. Of course, we had to go and verify the veracity of the generation and go to the source text and make sure that it was actually truthful because all of us do have the veracity to hallucinate and we don't want to do that in front of you know senior Air Force leadership. But you know, I think that was a, a perfect example of how that instant access to your underlying knowledge is like so incredibly powerful. And I think that is going to be kind of a ubiquitous transformation across DoD is people having access to all of these documents. And just like, you know, before, you know, now we consider search to, through documents to be pretty standard for your own information. I think we're also going to find kind of like L on chat interfaces over your documents to be kind of that next like must have because it's your own data. Yeah, no, it's interesting. It's sort of like the web gave us cataloging at scale in some way, right? And now AI is going to give us insight and intelligence at scale from that data, right? It's kind of, kind of an interesting leap forward, right? Yeah, and, and it's and it's your own data, you know, it's not like looking through the whole internet or something. I think that personalization just really is compelling in, in the context of the DOD. Yeah, that's very cool. So before we move on, any other cool projects you guys want to talk about that, that you guys are working on? People always love this. <laughs> I don't know if it's going to be considered cool, but I, I think that I'll just talk about it. Yeah. So we partnered with, and this is another long acronym, the Defense Civilian Personnel Advisory Service, ECPAS. They came to us, we're like, hey, could we use large language models to generate position descriptions or like jobs, things that, you know, the positions that are listed on USA jobs. And so they asked us like, could we use LMs in this context? And, you know, our gut reaction was like, yes, but we went and did some more like work on that, ran some experiments where we compared what GPT-4 would generate or a position description versus what the human did. And we found that there were pros and cons to each. The human-generated position descriptions were pretty specific and tailored to a given position, which that is because they had specific contextual information that like GPT-4 just doesn't have. But GPT-4-generated position descriptions were much more compelling and attractive to the general public. Or like, and that's because we instructed it to to be to word it in a mission-oriented, compelling, exciting. I'm laughing because I literally just put a position description in the chat GPT right before we got on this call. Oh, really? Okay. To, to be like, make this inspiring so that the person who wanted this job would be into it, right? You know, and it, and it came out with something. It wasn't perfect. It was still, it was a little over the top. Like sure. it's inspiring was too much, but, I, but it was, it's literally, I did it right before we got Yeah, on. and that, we just, very similarly, we did something like that where we, we told it to be, you know, inspiring, to be connected to the mission. Long story short, our conclusion was we do think that we delivered this to DCPAS. We think that things like ChatGPT and large language models can be largely beneficial in this space, but not as a thing that is completely offloaded to the LLM. We think it's a more human in the loop, mm. iterative process where they maybe you, we suggested the optimal flow of being like, take the human generated position description, pass it to ChatGPT ask it to make improvements and kind of do that, like feedback back and forth. We found that to be incredibly useful. Yeah. I think, you know, what I see the trend being is whether this is an LLM or sort of like a database, but 
but you obviously have a ton of PDs out there from yours. Yep. So can you then create a more specific model that's just a PD model, essentially? Because ChatGPT is trying to be everything to everybody, right? So can you, you know, at some point you might even be able to get that human in the loop to one percent of all the work. Right? That's exactly right. We there have been some other projects that I've worked on with respect to HoloLens where we actually had to go and fine tune a large language right. model on like the domain of that particular organization, especially with the acronyms. The downfall of ChatGPT, it'll be like, it'll just guess what the acronyms yeah. are in DoD. So us providing like that, almost like lexicon to, to, to the LM, you just see massive. Yeah, that's really cool. So then obviously you guys are kind of a shared service organization. You got the biggest organization in the world you're working with there. So like a lot of people using AI and data across the economy have similar experiences. So let's talk a little bit about what is it like to try to coordinate across? What are the barriers that, you know, make it difficult to kind of bring all the resources together for DOD? Drew, I don't know if you have thoughts on that. Yeah, it's tough just because of how complex uh, an organization are. You know, the I think a, a lot of people who are in the DOD don't necessarily realize how kind of independent each of the military services is, how there's kind of overlapping authorities and chains of command. You know, obviously the Secretary of Defense and the President is, you know, the their he's the commander, the president's the commander in chief. You know, that authority flows through. The Chinese have a saying that the mountains are high and the emperor is far away, though. It's like that, you know, right below that level, it's just, it looks like a spaghetti chart of who is who. And so a lot of the work involves kind of persuasion and, you know, making people feel comfortable with what you're doing, making sure everybody's kind of invested in it together. And so, you know, getting over the, the tendency of, well, this is my data and I'm responsible for protecting it, which is... Totally, totally reasonable. I mean, my background says an intelligence analyst and I, I totally get, you know, we want to compartmentalize things and we want to, you know, protect that information as much as possible. We do a lot of work just to kind of make people kind of comfortable with the idea that the data will continue to be protected, even as it's shared more broadly within the department, it's going to be put to responsible use. It won't be abused and that it's better for everybody if, if we share it out. And it's, I, I don't want to say that like, that's a constant thing you run into, you know, the DEPSEC deaths, data decrees from a couple of years ago are really resonating with people that data is a shared enterprise asset. I, I think people kind of get that, get that mindset, but you know, then there's of course the tech, just the technical challenge of linking all of these, all of these disparate data sets, and, you know, it gets to the point where it's too large, I think for anyone, it's not like we can make one database that we can just put everything into right. and, and make it virtual. So a lot of the work that uh, the people are doing is just sort of on the technical side of actually know how do you link data sets or how do you bring analytics to where the data is at rest, literally and figuratively, versus trying to hoover it all up into some centralized database in the Pentagon. And you're, and you're not dealing with similar situation, you know, in the commercial sector, I mean, it varies obviously, but you probably have a lot of systems with APIs and they're commercially available. You know, obviously DOD has some of that, but you, you have many more systems that, you know, by design don't have those sort of things. And, you know, we're right, just right. for DOD and maybe run on COBOL or something like that. But, you know, what's up <laughs> yeah. that? But, you know, I'm sure the yeah. barriers there are technically, I don't know, Glenn, any perspective on that? 
Yeah, I would love to share my perspective because I've been dealing with this recently, actually, where in the context of the project I mentioned with the headquarters of the Air Force, they want me to have their data. I want their data. Everyone, like we're all in alignment. Everyone's good. But people who actually host their data are vendors, you know, these private companies. And they aren't contractually obligated to actually share it with me for free. It requires me to have an API connection to their, their data, which makes sense, you know, secure connections, et cetera. But that requires engineering time, which requires money, which requires renegotiated contracts. Especially and once you're for, in procurement, forget it. Yeah, <laughs> exactly, exactly. And so for smaller budget projects where we need to have a small budget in order to prove you know, the, the value of it, this happens a lot, but it can be frustrating because everyone wants, we're on the government side, everyone's in alignment sharing the data and so forth. But there's kind of these like logistical, technical blockers and barriers mm-hmm. where I want to be able to get access to the data programmatically. It's going to be a whole kind of orchestration. Other aspects, um, and you alluded to this, other uh, components of CPAO is a program called CJADC2, which are working on this kind of being able to have an overarching connected data integration layer and so forth. So to kind of remediate problems that I kind of run into, but you know, they're currently working on that as we speak. But it is incredibly frustrating. And a lot of the times I have to end up just like show up with a hard drive at a certain office and be like, just put it on this. No questions asked. And then I will leave you alone. Um, But I think we can do better. Yeah. And I mean, just to be fair, a lot of these, you know, systems were architected at a different time. They weren't necessarily made for this. And, and, um, you know, there's not a commercial market to support these very specific needs for some program. Right. So they don't adopt the new stuff no, until they have to, right? And so it's going to be a period of time of re-architecting how, you know, IT procurement is done. I'm sympathetic to the procurement office too, so with all sides. So, you know, CDAO has a, a large procurement office that's part of our organization too, that's really trying to tackle exactly that. You know, if you go and look for the RAI toolkit, for instance, it's actually hosted on the Tradewinds website. So Tradewinds, okay. a program that we run that allows more rapid acquisition of technology and a lot of experimentation and, and trials before you actually commit to a full-on contract. And one of the reasons that we're putting the RAI toolkit on there is as a sort of signal to, to vendors that like there are certain things that we expect you to do, such as making your data available via API uh, from here on out and you know, avoiding vendor lock and meeting the, the different uh, ethical obligations and stuff. But we're at least trying to get to a no new bad uh, for the things like Glenn is uh, is talking about from um, you know making sure that like future contracts and future projects kind of don't have those problems. Yeah, exactly. You just brought me to my last section here. So when you guys CDO and DoD and you know actually just AI in general, I mean it doesn't have to be specific to DoD. Like, what do you guys or what do you see CDO and DoD looking? the future what what kind of things are you seeing any priorities in this space yeah sure i'll i'll tackle it first on the just general ai capability like not just spoke to dod i think over the next year or two obviously we're going to see a large increase in performance and capability of large language models in terms of the different benchmarks they're able to hit we're going to see audio and video and imagery 
those modalities play a large role where it's going to be, be able to do a better job at understanding its environment. There's also one thing I'm really excited about, which is the prospect of small language models. So large language models refer to language models with a, a parameter count in the tens or hundreds of billions. Small language models have emerged, have shown to actually achieve parity with the likes of models that powered like ChatGPT and so forth. But the difference is these models are small enough to actually run locally on computers, even like DoD computers, DoD workstations. Um, so I think that's going to be really powerful in terms of like how ubiquitous language models become. If we can actually just have these things running locally, as opposed to having to connect through the internet to you know, cloud GPUs and clusters and so forth. Um, there's a lot of expense there. So I'm pretty excited about that, just generally speaking. On the DoD side, I think that the lowest hanging fruit for DoD with large language models is actually going to be paperwork, kind of like what we, we talked about, where LLMs are just proven to be pretty competent in this area. I mean, and there's a couple of other tools that have emerged proven to be quite good at the, that, that space. Again, the whole idea of like instant or rapid knowledge bases, able to just quickly retrieve information that you're that's relevant to you that can lock all sorts of insights. I think that's going to be really, really big at DoD. And then lastly, I think what we need to, and this is kind of more my domain, is focus on the, how do we productionize large language models. That is still a big unknown, even in the private sector, but productionizing these LLMs moving from, oh, cool, it's a cool experiment and a pilot to, okay, now we have actual users. Now we actually want to be in a deal with sensitive and high stakes information and data and intelligence. Uh, there's a pretty big gap there. We have to scaling the, the experiment. Ex product. Exactly. And ensuring the confidence and reliability of the outputs. Again, we mentioned hallucinations. You cannot have hallucinations in um, certain contexts at the DOD. So those are things that we're actively working on, but so is the rest of the sector. Yeah, of course. And I'm encouraged on the hallucinations, like the drop from three, five to four in ChatGPT. And then, That's you true. know, the, yeah. the smaller you make that model, the more focused, the less, I mean, it's always an issue, but it's the, you know, I, I see it less, much less now. Drew, on your side, any looks to the future? Yeah, I'm, I'm most excited, I think, about kind of the cultural shift that, that we're seeing within the department. People getting more comfortable with using AI and analytics, there being more of an expectation that we have these capabilities. We're, we're already kind of at the point where people are using a lot of this stuff in their, you know, personal lives, their private lives, you know, even in just like, you know, webmail, like that it's uh, automatically filling in, you know, what you think you want to write in this email and stuff. So it's encouraging, I think, that people are getting more comfortable with it in their personal lives. And so it's our challenge to make sure that there's enough guardrails around it, enough measures taken to uh, achieve that kind of justified confidence that people then, like Len mentioned, in those high stakes situations and in, in products where it's not just an experiment or a one-off thing that we look at and say, you know, well, that's really interesting, but that we're actually allowing some of these technologies to come in and change you know, how people do their their day-to-day -day jobs and how they make their decisions. I think, you know, the power of them really is in that, like transforming your fundamental 
how you go about your day, how you, whether it's from, you know, an HR thing, how you put out a job announcement and find candidates and hire them up to like, how do you plan and execute a mission? There's, you know, the, the ways we're currently doing it. And then there's just so many more powerful things that can happen once people are able to embrace it with the confidence that you need to. Yeah. Once you see it, right. You're just like, oh my God, we should do this for everything. Right. You know, and it's, and it's <laughs> right, not, you know, you right. got to get everyone to that spot. And, and I totally resonate with you, Drew, there that in a way I said 24 might be the UI UX year for large language models where you're kind of getting out of being in a browser or going over to some special things you got now, you got co-pilots coming out and productivity Ooh. software. You're going to have your point, small models that r might run on mobile and you just got to see a whole different way of people interacting that's going to take out some of the friction there. Well, guys, this has been awesome. So great to hear about all the great work going on at CDAO. And we'd love to check back in and periodically and see how things are going and what new developments are happening. But for now, thanks so much for being on. Thank you so much, Alan. I love talking about this stuff. It's a great opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, appreciate the discussion, Alan. All right, we'll talk to you soon. AI, Government and the Future is brought to you by Corner Alliance. To find out more about Corner Alliance and how we work with government to create results, visit our website at corneralliance.com and then make sure to search for AI Government Future in Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts or anywhere else podcasts are found and click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Corner Alliance, Thanks for listening.